Well, as we uh, come to tonight's passage, or to um, preaching tonight's passage, I just would like to pray. Father, uh, thank you that we have this opportunity to come here to spend time together worshiping you. Father, uh, thank you that you have given us discernment to, to read your word and to work out what you want us to, meet, want to, uh, you want us to know. Uh, Father, I just pray as I speak tonight that you would speak through me and that you would let your will be known. Amen. I'll let you guys <laughs> escape. Well, as a teacher, one of the challenges I face more often than you think is parental blindness. Not my wee Jimmy, one mother said to me last week. My wee Jimmy's such a lovely little polite boy. Are you sure you've got the right pupil? Well, in two years of teaching wee Jimmy, he has yet to say one lovely or polite thing to me. And frankly, behavior is not a good thing with him. And last week, I caught him in the stairwell with a permanent marker writing quite a rude word on the wall. Now, wee Jimmy has been suspended twice this year and has served over 20 after-school detentions. I think it's safe to say wee Jimmy's mum has a bit of a case of parental blindness. And just like wee Jimmy's mum, Samuel's suffering from a little bit of parental blindness. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he had made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Bathsheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Up until this point, we have never seen a pattern of judges being appointed by men or the office being passed from father to son. A judge was a leader raised up by God, usually to meet a specific need in a time of crisis. And then after the crisis was over, the judge would go back to whatever they were doing before. So when we see, well, we will see in this series that God, or we have seen in this series that God raised up Samuel to take over when Israel's leadership had become incredibly corrupt and had rejected God. Samuel himself is one of the godliest men we see in the Bible. And under his leadership, Israel turns away from their idolatry and back to God. But Samuel is not without sin. And I think it's fairly safe to say that his decision to appoint his sons as judges was actually a sinful one. Samuel is suffering from parental blindness. He cannot see that his sons do not walk in his ways and are not fit for the purpose of leading Israel. So what happens? Well, at the opening part of this chapter, the elders actually make quite a wise decision. It's well within their rights to challenge this decision to make his sons judges. Look at verse four and five with me. And then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, make us a king to judge us like all other nations. The elders say, hang on a minute, Samuel. We don't have to accept these sons as our new leaders. And they know that, the men, that a man who doesn't walk in the way of the Lord will only lead Israel down the path to ruin. 
And yet within the same breath, these elders who are initially correct uh, go from very wise to very foolish. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. One of the commentaries I read believes that God was going to appoint a king over Israel, that in his timing, God would bring about a king to lead Israel, and so the desire for a king is not a bad one. But the motive behind Israel's elders was the problem. They want to be like every other nation. So here we are. Samuel's being confronted by the elders, and tonight I've decided to break this passage down into the reactions from each of the main characters. Firstly, we're going to look at Samuel's reaction when the elders confront him. Then we're going to look at God's reaction to the elders' demands. And lastly, we're going to look at the elders' reaction when God issues his warning. And I said lastly, but at the end, we're going to look at our reaction and what our reaction should be. So, Samuel's reaction. Samuel's displeased, and he's probably displeased for three reasons. Firstly, They've called him old. You know, it's not untrue. Uh, and the passage does tell us that he's now unable to lead as he used to. But I'm sure it was hard to hear. And I'm sure he's probably quite frustrated that he's no longer able to do what he was always which, able to do, which he was once very, very good at. Secondly, they've rejected his sons. Samuel probably knew in his heart that his sons were not up to the task of leading Israel. But Parental blindness and maybe a little bit of bias. It's really hard to hear negative feedback through that. Finally, and most importantly, Samuel knew that Israel's motives were all wrong. By wanting to be like every other nation, they were rejecting God's identity that he had given them. God calls us to be so much more than being like everybody else. He wants us to pursue an identity in him. So, Samuel's displeased. How does he react? Well, it's actually a mark of how godly he is that the first thing he does is turn to God in prayer. He takes his upset, his anger, his frustration, and he lays it on the Lord. Look at verse six with me. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Samuel prays prays earnestly to the Lord because he knows God can take his burden and support him. Our reaction in times of disappointment, rejection, uh, or hurt can be to bottle up our feelings or our hurt or let it brew away inside us. And this comes out in two ways. Either we pressurize and we react to the smallest little thing and we explode in some sort of angry way over a paper cut or something small. Or it embitters us and we become snide or snarky, always being negative or putting things down. And either way, the only person we're really hurting by doing this is ourselves. As children of God, we should be running to the Lord with our pain, with our disappointment, our feelings of rejection, our anger of being wronged, lay it on him. I can assure you he's strong enough to take it. Let him unburden you. Let him help you. Take a leaf out of Samuel's book. Well, that's Samuel's reaction. How does God react? Well, 
Samuel goes to the Lord in prayer and tells him of his pain and what the Israelites are asking for. And one of the many things I love about God is his consistency. Samuel wasn't worried that if he brought this to the Lord, God would react in a weird way. He wasn't worried that God would suddenly fly off the handle and get really mad or just react with, well, it's nothing to do with me. Look at verse seven. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. What does God do? He starts by comforting Samuel. Samuel, hey, listen. It's not you that they're rejecting. It's not your leadership that they're turning away from. It's not you they no longer trust in. Samuel, it's not you. It's me. God has called Israel to be different from all the other nations, to look, uh, to look to and trust in his kingship rather than earthly kingship. But the Israelites don't want that anymore. They want to be like everybody else. In fact, Israel have completely rejected God by asking for a king. When the elders, uh, el- sorry, when the elders of Israel ask for a king, they thought that better politics, better government could meet their needs. But if they had just been faithful to the king they have in heaven, they wouldn't need a king on earth. And this strikes us as simply unfair. Didn't God show himself a worthy king? Didn't he demonstrate his ability to lead the nation and demonstrate it over and over again? Sometimes I do, or something I do from time to time and really should do more often is reflect on the times that God has come through for me the times where I've been at a loss for what to do, the times where I've gone through suffering or pain, uh, the times of stress or anxiety, and all those times God has been faithful. God has seen me through. God has proved himself a worthy king in my life. And so it shames me to say that I, much like the Israelites, have not always made God the king of my life despite his loyalty and faithfulness. So, so God decides, okay, if they want a king, they can have a king. Pretty ominous. But this was not because their request was good or right, but because, we'd, because God would teach them through this. Sometimes when we insist on having something bad or for bad motivation, God will allow us to have it so he can teach us through it. In many ways, this was a matter of timing. God knew Israel would have a king, but he wanted to give them a king in his timing. If Israel had been patient and waited for God, God would have raised up a king in the form of David. But because Israel demanded a king for bad and carnally-minded reasons, God gave them a bad and carnally-minded king. Israel will get what they wanted, and they will hurt because of it. But Israel wants a king now. So God tells Samuel, go, forewarn them uh, of what having a king will really mean. So we're going to read verses 9 to 18. Now, listen to them, but uh, sorry. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his right. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his right. 
He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and run them in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to the commanders of thousands and the commanders of fifties. The others will plow his ground and reap his harvest and others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves and take them for his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain of the, uh, and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants are the best of your cattle and the donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And on that day, you will cry out for relief from your king that you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. He will take he will take, 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 and you will be his slaves. Heavy, heavy words and stark warning. And God's decision to forewarn them, uh, in God's decision to forewarn them, he is giving Israel responsibility over this decision. In no way can they turn around and say, well, we didn't know it would be like this. In telling Israel, Samuel did not only help them to make an informed choice, but he increased their accountability and their responsibility for making that choice. So we've had Samuel's reaction, we've had God's reaction. So how did the Israelite elders' reaction? Well, at this point, you would be expecting a big U-turn, wouldn't you? No, 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 God, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, we don't really want a king. If a king's going to be like that... If he's going to take everything we have and make us slaves, we don't want that. No, sorry, God, we're so sorry. Sorry, Lord, we should, have, we should have been faithful to you. We should have trusted in you. We should have followed you. We shouldn't have wanted a king. We're sorry, Lord. Fortunately, that's not what they do. Look at verse 19 with me. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Much like populist politicians, in the face of hard facts, the elders double down. No, I don't care what you think might happen. We want a king. Again, the reasoning is to be just like other nations but we also get a deeper glimpse into why they want this. In fairness to the Israelites, at this point in the Bible, there is a real chance of them being invaded by a neighboring nation. But is that a good reason? In 1 Samuel 7, God wins a spectacular battle against the Philistines for the Israelites. Israel doesn't lack a king. They have a king in the form of the Lord God. But they stubbornly hold to this desire for a king. And we're going to see in the next few chapters over the next couple of Sundays how that works out for them. And the chapter ends quite flat and a little bit ominous. And every man went back to his own town. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. So we've seen Samuel's reaction, we've seen God's reaction, and we've seen an unfortunate reaction from the elders. How should we react? What does this mean for us tonight? 
You know, it's very easy for us to stand or sit here and say, well, how foolish were the Israelites? You know, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see the, the whole story of the Bible. Uh, and it's very easy for us to say how unwise they were. But actually, unfortunately, it's also very easy for us to fall into similar traps. The desire to be like everybody else. I want an impressive job. Why? Because everyone around me seems successful. I want the latest mobile phone. Why? Because everybody else seems to have one. I want to be married. Why? Because all my friends are married. I want to lead in this area. Why? Because other people are leading in other areas. And it's not that these things are bad. Far be it, some of them are very good things. But it's our motivation behind that is so key. If we only want these things just to be like everybody else, then our desires, the desires of our heart are not in line with the Lord's desires. Another trap we can fall into is trying to rule our own lives rather than submitting to the king of kings. We can too often think we know best or hide aspects of our lives away from the Lord. The Israelites rejected God's kingship and demanded a new king. But did this mean the Lord was no longer king over them? They may have asked for a king, but it was God who gave it to them. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had a king unless God wanted them to have a king. God is still in control. God is still in charge. They were rejecting the rule of God, but they couldn't escape it. Are there, areas in your, are there areas in your life where you're resisting the rule of God? Does he reign in your work life with how you conduct yourself and how you treat others? Does he reign in your social life with the words you use or the jokes you make? Does he reign in your personal life with how you spend your time alone or who you choose to date? Israel accomplished nothing from this. God still ruled, God still reigned, but they no longer benefited from this rule. I find, I find this passage particularly challenging. Um, and as I prepared it over the last couple of weeks, I've been asking myself the question, does God reign in every area of my life? In fact, this week, uh, I was talking to a colleague in the staff room and she said, well, what do you get up to over the weekend? And, and last weekend, I, I went down to Galway for my friend Stagdu. And she goes, oh, Stagdu, I'm sure that was messy. And, you know, I was so tempted just to go, yeah, 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 and, and let the conversation pass by. I'm really ashamed to say I was so tempted to do that. Something inside of me, certainly not me, definitely him, told me, no, no, no. So I said, well, you know, I, only, I would only have, you know, a couple. I wouldn't really drink. She goes, you wouldn't really drink? You're not one of those religious people, are you? And I was like, well, okay, here we go. So, and you know what? It was a really good conversation, a really nice conversation. And it's an example of letting God rule in your life. You know, when he takes the lead, you follow and, and, and he does things. Um, and I, you know, I'm really grateful that he pushed me to do that. Um, there are lots of times when I haven't done that. I'm not up here trying to, trying to brag, but um, that was a really good moment and really crystallized for me um, what that looks like in a real tangible and practical way. So how do we help, or how do we uh, open up the areas in our lives for God's rule and reign? 
But I think actually a, a really good place to start is to take a leaf out of Samuel's book. First thing Samuel does when confronted in this situation is pray. And I think praying that God will reign across all of areas in our life. Pray that his spirit will highlight areas in your life where you can submit to the Lord. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Uh, a really great place to start. God can lead us to be people who see his rule and reign as a good thing in our lives. Not for God's sake, but for our sake, that we might benefit. So, as you leave here tonight, I hope you can reflect that um, on these things that we can... Have we got a, another slide there? Yes, okay. So, our conclusion, my end has, has gone rogue, but here we go. So, my conclusion, get your heart's desire in line with God. Allow God to reign in your life and turn to God in prayer. Let us pray. Father, you're the God over all creation, the Lord over all the earth, and the King in our lives. Help us to be people who see your rule and reign in our lives as a good thing and a gift from you. Father, help us to submit to you, to your wisdom, and to your desires for our lives, that we might benefit from your reign. Father, it is so easy for us to fall into the traps and pitfalls that the Israelites, that the Israelites fell into. Uh, Father, please send your spirit to convict us of our sins and to keep us on your path. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.